Have you ever tried to solve a mystery? Ever tried to figure out exactly what was going on? Well, a few weeks ago, an article from the online version of the Mail Tribune in Medford, Oregon, had a story about a a mystery visitor. It read like this. A tuxedo-clad churchgoer of unknown origins has appeared almost any time vehicles have been parked outside the Central Point Community Bible Church for the past several years. The fact that the visitor snoozes through the church services and rarely goes inside is entirely lost on the church members. I mean, that's pretty strange, right? I mean, who, who wears a tuxedo to church on a Sunday? The two people you just heard laughed allows me the opportunity to invite you to the next church conference because you never know what's going to happen at our church conference. They're not business meetings. They're just lots of fun. A little plug there. The biggest mystery of this visitor at this church perhaps is the name. Some people call him Nacho. Some people call him Churchill. And some people just call him Kitty. That's right, the mysterious visitor is a cat at the Center Point Church. A cat keeps wandering in. The pastor calls him Nacho, which is short for Nacho Cat. I'm allowed one every week, right? The funniest part about this is this cat doesn't seem to be very mysterious. On the comment section at the bottom of the online article, someone had written in that that they were the owner of the cat. (laughs) The the cat lives on the other side of the fence from the church and has lived there for years and years and years. In fact, they went on to write this. There's not a lot of mystery. Church members have my phone number and even called me last week asking questions about him. So the mysterious cat is, is not a mystery at all. And incidentally, his name is not Nacho. His name is Exodore. Yes, I'm saying that right. Exodor the cat, because of course that's what every kid names their cat, Exodor. The cat was not really a mystery. There are many people that think the church is a mystery. How did the church get started? Why does the church exist? Why are so many churches just a hot mess? And why is it that I should be connected to a church? What What should I have anything to do with a local church? Well, if you're a member of this church, then I hope that in the next few moments you'll be more encouraged. I hope that you'll have a a greater sense of joy and confidence in what it means to be part of a local church. And if Holland Avenue is Nacho Church, had a little more mileage, right? If Holland Avenue is not your church and you're not connected to a church anywhere, then I hope the next few moments that you will catch a glimpse that this thing called the church, Jesus' church, perhaps is the messiest, most incredible, most amazing, most beautiful thing on the entire earth. Jesus was having a little bit of a retreat with his friends one day. And we're going to listen in on their conversation. Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
Caesarea Philippi was not the kind of place where there was a Southern Baptist church on every corner. It was the, the kind of place where there were all kinds of religions. It was like a food court for religion. You could get a combo of just about anything that you wanted when it came to religion. It wasn't a God-fearing place. It was a place where they created all kind of gods. Lots of religions, lots of idols. And so in the middle of that very non-Bible belt atmosphere, Jesus turns to his friends and he says, Hey, who do the people say that I am? Now, Jesus isn't on a, an arrogance trip here. This isn't a pride question. He's not trying to see how many Twitter followers he has for his ministry. Jesus is, is actually trying to build them towards something. He's, he's wanting to help them. And it's not just them. He's wanting to help me and he's wanting to help you. And so this is how they respond back to him. They said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Each one of these guys that they mentioned were well-known for doing well-known things. See, that's what a lot of people thought about Jesus back in the ancient world. They thought that Jesus might be some really big, huge political reformer, and he was going to come in, and he was going to get the, the whole country back on track. And the reality was probably some of the disciples thought the same thing. And because of that, Jesus seems to press them with a second question. Look what he says in verse 15. So he said to them, but who do you say that I am? I want you to think about every important question that you have in your life. Who are you going to marry? Where are you going to school? What kind of job are you going to take? What kind of car are you going to buy? What kind of house are you going to buy? What brand mayonnaise you're going to build? Dukes would be the only one that you should get, by the way. You know, we have lots of big questions and big decisions in life. So of all those questions, of all those decisions, I want you to know this is the question of all questions of your life. Who do you say Jesus is? Not who do your parents say Jesus is. Not who do your grandparents say Jesus is. Not who does the pastor say Jesus is. Who do you say Jesus is? So you can't stand before God and say, well, you know, I did good on my standardized testing, you know. You can't stand before God and say, well, I was faithful to my spouse or, you know, I put my kids through college or I gave money to charity or volunteered at a nonprofit. I was a good citizen of my country. Those things are all good. They're all nice. They're all noble. But when you're standing in the courtroom of eternity, none of those things will have any value toward the penalty that's in your account. You see, Jesus was not just a nice political or social reformer. He was and he is the Savior. Somebody has said this, the Christianity that actually saves is personal. So what have you personally done with Jesus? What are you personally doing with Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? One of the disciples spoke up and answered the second question. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter pipes up first, but the reality is it's probably something he's saying for everybody that's involved. All of these guys had been around Jesus for a while now. They, they knew that he was no sham. They knew he was not a religious fad. They knew that he was more than just a healer, more than just a teacher, more than just a preacher. They had discovered that this guy, this one guy, was the anointed one of God. But he was the Messiah. There was no doubt in their mind. 
And so how does Jesus respond to what Peter says? Continuing on verses 17 and 18. And Jesus said to him, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The disciples clearly knew, they clearly understood that Jesus was not just another preacher in a fancy suit with great hair. They, they knew that Jesus was not just some young metro evangelist, you know, with, with skinny jeans and a great Bible verse tattoo. They knew there was more to Jesus than, than what they had seen in other people. But Peter couldn't come up with this phrase on his own. He, he just wasn't that quick, wasn't that smart, wasn't that bright. Yes, God had been showing the disciples, hey, this is not just a man. This, this is someone more. But in this moment, at this time, when Peter is pressed with the question of all questions, God very uniquely helps him to see that Jesus is the one and only and for certain Messiah and Savior and Redeemer and King and Lord. So I press again with the question of questions. Who do you say Jesus is? Now Jesus goes on here to say that he's going to build the church on Peter. Now, I'm pretty sure that doesn't mean that he's going to put brick and mortar on top of Peter's head or have him lie down and and wait for him to die and put him in the coffin and stick his coffin as the cornerstone of the new sanctuary. Pretty sure that's not what he means by he was going to build on Peter. But this statement continues to stir up debate even today. There is much to be said about this one phrase from Jesus. And there's no way I could say all of it in one sermon. So I'm going to attempt just to give a small portion of the notes of Cliff for this particular idea about Peter. This is the first time that the word church is used in the New Testament. And who's using it? Jesus. So who created the church? Jesus. Who built the church? Jesus. Whose church is it? Peter's. Right? No. (laughs) None of the math works here. See, the reality of what we have here is that that Jesus bought the church with his own blood. He purchased the church with his own blood. Jesus built the church. Jesus owns the church. And one day, Jesus is fully and finally going to free and rescue and bring the church home. That's the promise that we have. So what does this mean that he's going to build the church on Peter? Well, think just a moment about looking at the consistent life of Jesus. Look at the the whole of what we have recorded about Jesus Christ, the way he taught, the way he instructed his disciples. And when we see that, at the very least, it is inconsistent to think that Jesus is proclaiming that Peter is going to be the everlasting president of the church. At the very least, it's inconsistent. At the most, it's ungodly to say that someone besides Jesus would be the true foundation of the church. In fact, Peter himself didn't even believe he was the rock of the church. First Peter chapter 2, verse 6, he writes this, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Have you been disappointed this week? Have you had someone let you down? Maybe a, a politician? Maybe a parent? Maybe a spouse? Maybe the, the girl at the drive-thru? I don't know. <laughs> and who let you down this week? Who disappointed you? Who didn't get your order right? 
Who, who forgot to, to do what you asked them to do? See, we're surrounded with disappointment. And if the church were really built on Peter, we would be disappointed. You know why? Because Peter didn't get everything right. And neither would any of us. Can you imagine what our hymns would sound like if this really meant that the whole church is being built on Peter? My hope is built on nothing less than Peter's blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest rain, but wholly lean on Peter's name. On Peter, solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Wouldn't that be weird? Especially if you had a guy named Peter in your church. I mean, wouldn't that be really, really weird? See, the the picture we have here is if we actually look at Jesus Christ, if we look at his life, if we look at what he said and what he did, if we look at the instructions that he gave his disciples, if we look at the, the whole of the New Testament, we have to say, what in the world is the most reasonable thing that Jesus means by building the church on Peter. I think Ray Pritchard has, has put it together in really just one thought. The church is not built on men alone, nor is it built on a confession alone. The church is built on men confessing together that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation of the church. In other words, you could have a church that had nothing to do with Jesus if the people didn't agree that Jesus was the foundation of the church. And not just in in language and not just on a piece of paper, but, but functionally, every single day, Jesus Christ is the foundation. He's the head. He's the leader of the church day in and day out. Jesus was going to build the church, what we have come to now at this point, on Peter's confession. On Peter standing in the middle of a world of all kind of religions and idols and saying, no, you're it. Jesus, you aren't a fairy tale. Jesus, you aren't just a legend. You aren't a myth. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. That's what we build everything on. So, what's that building program look like over the last 2,000 years? Let's just take a quick look. In modern times, when it comes to the church, we will find many Christians arguing over a number of different things, Uh, pledging allegiance only to certain denominations, or pledging allegiance only to certain churches, or pledging allegiance to only certain styles of music. These are the kind of wars, so to speak, that we have today in the church. The worship wars of the early church were a little different. Their their wars were more centered on the fact that they were being arrested and tortured and executed for their faith. Sounds a little different than how we talk about Christianity, right? That's not my kind of music. That's not my kind of dress. That's not my kind of denomination. They died for following Jesus. They are our example. We follow after the same cross. We lift up only that cross for the Lord Jesus. They were persecuted. One church leader who lived a couple hundred years after Jesus, he said that those early Christians and the deaths that they died, they were like a seed. And that seed grew. That's the only reason that we exist today according to that historian. He said because of those early Christians dying for their faith. It was the seed of growth for the church. 
It wasn't long, though, about 100 years after he wrote that, that things changed. And it all changed because a guy named Constantine. Constantine became the, the supreme leader of the Roman Empire. And he had some kind of vision. And in the vision, he had this thing where he was like, oh, yeah, Christianity is cool. Okay, great. And so he woke up and he said, you know what? I'm going to start associating myself with Christianity. We don't know if he really became converted or not. can't really be confirmed. But, but what we do know is that once he had this vision, he kind of turned the whole Roman Empire into like a Christian nation. He kind of made Christianity the official religion. And so it went from persecution to prosperity. Things were good. But it wasn't long before the prosperity turned to bride. See, the the pride of the church started changing things, and, and they started looking like a little empire themselves. They started building these little empires, and they would elect and appoint these leaders to be in charge of their empires, and, and eventually those leaders began to push the gospel out of the front seat. The gospel got pushed back, you know, fifth or sixth pew in the church. It was no longer the primary thing. The first Christians, the early Christians, they had a joy and a courage in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They bled and died so that the message would get out. The gospel that Jesus commanded, the the gospel that Peter and Paul taught, 400 years later, it just almost disappeared. It started getting downplayed. The basics were being ignored. But what are the basics of the gospel? Well, the basics are amazingly simple. It's that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This, This is the essence of what it means to know about Jesus. That salvation in him is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That message was being minimized. The the gospel was being put off to the side. And this happened for a few hundred years. And then it happened for another few hundred years. And then there was this monk. His name was Martin Luther. And that guy started, like, really reading his Bible. And all of a sudden, he, he, he started seeing the gospel. It was just leaping off the page at him. Luther was part of a system where literally they were selling certificates to people. For a price, you could get this little certificate. And they say, hey, you know what? You should frame that thing. Go put it up on the, the wall at your house or in your office because that is an official pardon from heaven. One of their salesmen even had a little catchy slogan that went along As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And this is what Luther started doing. He started saying, you know what, that's just paper. That there's no authority from heaven for that piece of paper. And the the leaders of all the churches, they didn't like that. And so they had Luther arrested. And they said, look, we want you to to stand up in front of everybody and just tell everybody you're a big fat liar, okay? And everything you're saying is not true. And this was his response. Unless I am convinced by testimonies of the scriptures or by clear arguments that I am in error, for popes and councils have often erred and contradicted themselves. And so have pastors and Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and everybody else. I cannot withdraw. For I am subject to the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. It is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against one's conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. Luther was kind of the lead worshiper of a whole crowd of folks that started loving the gospel again with that joy and confidence that the early Christians did. And they began to move the gospel far and wide back into the front seat of the church. 
But about 400 years later, the church fell in love with the world again. And they started listening to the philosophies of the world. They were, they were dying to be culturally relevant. And so they be, begin to question things. They begin to say, well, is the Bible really the Bible? I mean, is this really, really God's word? Did Jesus really do all of those miracles? Is, is that really true? Before long, the gospel was again being pushed out of the front seat. About 100 years after that, in the early 1900s, mid-1900s, there was another crowd of folks, people that included Billy Graham and, and John Stott and others, and they began to say, no, no, this is God's word. This is the truth about Jesus. And they began to challenge churches to be very careful about being cute little country clubs. And that's really where we find ourselves today. We're still a, a group of people trying to fight for the truth of the Bible. We're still trying to affirm that the Bible is God's word. We're, we're still trying to make sure that we listen to those warnings about being a little country club church because that is not what Jesus has called us to do. So, what does all this little history lesson have to do with you? Well, I hope that it helps you to see that the church is really messy, but the church is not a mystery. The church didn't just you know, show up one day on the other side of the fence and a bunch of people started going. There's no mystery to what the church is. The church goes by a lot of different names, a lot of different denominations, but there is one owner and there is one leader and there is one Savior and his name is Jesus. But what about those other names? What about the, the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and the Methodists and the Episcopalians and, and the Baptists? And what about those Southern Baptists? Some of you have no idea what a Southern Baptist is. <laughs> you might think of some kind of disease or something. I don't know. But maybe you've been thinking about coming to be a part of this church. And if so, then, then it would probably help a little bit to understand kind of what a Southern Baptist is. So what is a Southern Baptist? I mean, what does that mean? Well, I have a weird illustration to give you on this. So right after I got out of college, I went out on kind of a blind date. And we went out to breakfast. It's a very weird blind date, but we went out to breakfast. And she knew that I was a, a youth pastor. I'd just started, only been there a couple of weeks. And, and so we went out to this you know, really good breakfast spot and, and kind of sitting there talking. And like one of the first things out of her mouth was, so why are you a Southern Baptist? I was 21. I was a moron. I have no idea what I said. Whatever it was, I know it sounded really dumb and lame because I could see that look on her face that whatever I said was really dumb and lame. But, but I didn't really know. I didn't know how to answer. I wasn't expecting that as, you know, first question on a date. So date's over. I get in the car. I call my brother-in-law. Dude, why are we Southern Baptists? <laughs> I, I just, I, I, and we had a great talk, and you know, he said a few things, and a lot, a lot of things I know were, were much more well-worded than I could remember. But I remember one word, and the one word that he said that I took away from that conversation was, was missions. I got the word missions from that. Listen, I want you to know Southern Baptists are just as sinful and stubborn and snobby as any other denomination. And I want you to know that, that we have plenty of blunders. We've got plenty of bad decisions. We've got plenty of, of unbiblical practices in our 171-year history. But I will say this. We also have a passion and a hunger to make sure the gospel doesn't stay in the sanctuary. 
We take our time and our talent and our energy, and we, we put it together. We, we try to do what we can to make sure that the gospel gets out. We try to make sure the gospel doesn't stay with us. Officially, to be a Southern Baptist means you're in friendly cooperation with other Southern Baptist churches. So what is, I don't know what this means. What does friendly cooperation mean? Well, friendly cooperation just simply means that for the most part, we agree on theology and we agree on the, a vision for missions and evangelism. And so the way we are friendly cooperating is through a few different ways. Nationally and internationally, we friendly cooperate with the Southern Baptist Convention. The convention is, is not a church. It's kind of like a parachurch organization. There's lots of different churches, thousands of churches that are connected to that. And so nationally and internationally, we connect with churches all over the world to make sure people can hear about Jesus. And then within our state, we're part of what's called the South Carolina Baptist Convention. That's, that's just the, the Southern Baptist churches here in South Carolina, and we, we partner with them. We do life with missions and evangelism with them. And even on a more local basis, we partner in the community with the Lexington Baptist Association. Again, just churches here in our area, and, and like during the flood, we were partnering with the Lexington Baptist Association to help people during the flood. These are all Southern Baptist groups. They all are, are financially and practically supported by us, and we all financially and practically help out with these groups. Now, let me be clear, though. None of these groups have authority over our church in any way, shape, or form. In other words, if one of those groups rewrites their bylaws to say that you have to officially only use prune juice during the Lord's Supper, we will no longer friendly cooperate with them. Okay? We'll, we'll be done with them. All right. But there's no authority there. There really is just cooperation. It's, it's us trying to work together for the sake of the gospel. And one of the ways we cooperate is through something called the cooperative program. Like how catchy that is? Yeah, it's not hard, is it? The cooperative program is a, is a big, huge fund that we use for missions and evangelism in this country and around the world. In 2014 and 2015, less than 3% of the money given to the cooperative program was used for administration. In other words, there's no fat cat driving around in a new bins because of money from the cooperative program. Very little is used for administration. Churches have the option to, to give money to the cooperative program. It's not required. It's, it's an option. The flip side of the 3% is that more than 97% of the money that churches gave to the cooperative program goes directly to missions, evangelism, church planning, and to missions and evangelism and church planning training. In other words, the money really goes first and most to the gospel. So our church participates in the cooperative program and will continue to participate as, as long as I'm your pastor <laughs> because it's a great way for us to partner with Christians all over the world for the sake of the gospel. Now, you may say, all right, big deal. What does that have to do with us? Oh, one more thing real quick. Part of that 97% goes to something known as the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Just a quick commercial. This group of people is like a prophetic voice for public policy, okay? So if you like politics or if you like public policy, you need to connect to these folks. They are doing some of the most strategic gospel-thinking ministry in our country right now. You can find out something every day, every week on ERLC.com. Just, just a quick plug there. But I just want to go a little farther than that. The only reason I'm standing in this pulpit as your pastor is because of the cooperative program. 
See, if it weren't for the cooperative program, I would have had to drop out of seminary and sell donuts out of my trunk and, you know, give Karen and Carter and Bailey stone soup for dinner every night because there's no way that I could have made it without the, the offsetting gifts of the cooperative program. Brad and Georgia were able to tell people in Africa about Jesus and still put some clothes and some food in front of their girls because of the gifts of the cooperative program. Carolyn Hustis has the opportunity to go this summer to a place that is lost and pagan. I mean lost and pagan to tell them about Jesus because of the investment of the cooperative program. So it's not just this nice bank account somewhere. It really has an impact right here in our own church. So those are the notes of Cliff for Peter the Rock and the history of the church and Southern Baptist. The real question is, big deal. (laughs) What does this have to do with you? What does it have to do with your life? Again, the question doesn't change. What's the church about? Why's the church around? Why does the church exist? Why does it still exist? And what does it have to do with my life? Well, I want to flip back all the way to the 1800s again to listen to our friend J.C. Ryle. This is a few quotes from an entire sermon. It's not one quote. I took a lot of quotes. Well, not a lot of quotes, but I took some quotes. But I love how they just flow so well together. And if you're looking for an answer of why you bothered to come to church today, if you're looking for an answer of why this church exists here on 12th Street, if you're looking for an answer for what the church can do for you, listen to these thoughts. J.C. Raw writes, We live in a world in which all things are passing away. Key word there, all. Kingdoms, empires, cities, institutions, families, all are liable to change and corruption. One universal law seems to prevail everywhere. In all created things, there is a tendency to decay. We know that, right? No visible church has any right to say, we are the only true church. We are the men and women, and wisdom shall die with us. No visible church should ever dare to say, we shall stand forever. The gates of hell will not overcome us. Ministers may preach and writers may write, but the Lord Jesus Christ alone can build, and except he builds, the work stands still. Sometimes the work moves fast, and sometimes it moves slowly. Man is frequently impatient and thinks that nothing is happening. But man's time is not God's time. A thousand years in his sight is but a single day. The great builder makes no mistakes. He knows what he is doing. All the powers of hell shall never ever throw his church. It shall continue. It shall stand in spite of every assault. It shall never be overcome. All other created things perish. All other things pass away, but not the church of Christ. Catching the vibe yet? <laughs> it's it's kind of bigger than your local civics club, you know? It's, it's kind of bigger than the social clubs. It's kind of bigger than your homeowners association, right? The church is this messy, gross, sinful, amazing, fantastic, incredible, beautiful thing that God has created. And everything about Jesus and his church is sure and final and certain forever. So here's the message from Jesus and his church to you. 
Here's the message from the church that will last forever and ever and ever just to you. And the message goes like this. Again from J.C. Ryle. Come into the lifeboat. The old world will soon break into pieces. Do you not hear the tremblings of it? The world is but a wreck stuck on the sandbar. The night is far spent. The waves are beginning to rise. The winds are rising. The storm will soon shatter the old wreck. But the lifeboat is launched. And we, the ministers of the gospel, beseech you to come into the lifeboat and be saved. That is why Holland Avenue Baptist Church exists, period. We are lifeboaters with joy and love and passion and hope and happiness calling out to others. This really is where you want to be. You see, when Jesus talks about building his church, he's not just talking about a building. He's not just talking about a denomination. He's not talking about a music style or a style of dress. He is talking about hope. He is talking about salvation. He is talking about joy. He is talking about satisfaction. Not just for a day, not just for a week, but forever and ever and ever. The church is a beautiful mess, but oh, what a beautiful mess she is because she belongs to Jesus.